are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Man, what a game. I mean, did you think that the Jaguars would win that game last night? Did you think I was talking about a different game? Oh, you're talking about Windsor Forest versus Georgia on Monday. That's a, that's a different game, right? No, um, I watched it. I did watch. And I will say this. And I said it all three services. I'm going to say it again. And you can believe me or not. And I have no dog, metaphorically, literally, in this fight. That Stetson Bennett is the greatest Georgia Bulldog who ever put on a uniform. I, I don't care what you say. You can tell a horse or You can tell me. And, and it's not just the fact that he won two national titles. It's because of his story, right? Here's the, he's the little guy that walks on. I have a, you know, an affection for the little guy, obviously. He is the guy that walks on and then they, they bring in Justin Fields, who by the way, abandoned y'all, just a reminder of that. Uh, they bring on Justin Fields, so what does he do? He goes down to junior college, walks back on, even though he could have gone and played for nothing, comes back on and he's what? The backup to Jacob Fromm. Never did anything, Fromm never did nothing for y'all. And then Fromm graduates, and then he's, he's back up again for some guy that no one even knows where the guy went. Mathis, whatever, no one even knows where that guy went. He could have got raptured for all we know. We don't even know where that guy went and played. All right, he's the back. And then, he, just when you think he's going to come in, they bring in JT Daniels. JT Daniels is our savior, right? And what happens? JT Daniels plays a half a game, gets injured, and y'all, y'all's hopes and dreams are like, ah, oh, it's going to happen again. And what does Stetson Bennett do? Comes off the bench wins a national title, and he wins a national title, and y'all still didn't want him. You're like, don't come back. We don't want Stetson Bennett to come back for a sixth year or seventh year or wherever. He's like 84 years old now. <laughs> don't come back, Stetson. We don't want you to come back. We got this other guy. So Stetson Bennett comes back, and what does he do? He goes undefeated, runs the table, and he has an up and down year. Let's be honest. He looked bad in some place. He looked as good as any quarterback's ever looked in that national championship game, and y'all still don't like him. Y'all still are like, yeah, but uh, who's next year? His story, he is the one, he is the one the builders rejected, and he has become the cornerstone. Uh, he was the replacement. He was the guy on the bench, and then the starter goes out. We're like, oh, great, we got to put in this guy. And in the end, it was glorious, right? That is the heart of our passage today, ultimately, that Jesus is going to say, this guy is done, and we're putting in this guy, and everyone's like, not that guy, and they put in that guy, and it's glorious. That's the, that's the, the text of scripture that we're gonna look at today. It's, it's the story of rejection and substitution and replacement and glory, right? Where Jesus is gonna say to this group of people, you're done, and this group, you're in. And we think, no, and it's like, yeah, and it's awesome. So we're going to look at Matthew 21, verse 23. We're going to cover a lot of scripture all the way down to 22, 14, where Jesus is going to tell three parables. And they're really all the same story. It's three parables, but they're all really talking about the same thing. It's kind of like the Star Wars. It's like you got Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back, and Star Wars 1, but it's all one big story. It's a triad. And so we're going to cover them all together and look at what he's trying to get across. And in the end, what he's saying is this group is done. This group is in. And as we study the text, here's what I want us to think about, because none of us are the Pharisees and religious leaders and Sadducees, so we can get lost in that. What I want us to think about is this group of people are going to be removed. Why? 
What is it about their rejection of Jesus? Ultimately, they're rejecting Jesus. But what is it in their heart that causes them to reject Christ? Because what, what I think it's important for us to do is, is in the text say, are these, any of these behaviors or any of these attitudes, are they prevalent in me? Do I see them in me? Because if we're in the text, we don't wanna be the ones replaced. We wanna be the replacements, right? That's, that's what we wanna be. Right? So we're gonna look at why this group's out and the kind of heart behind it so we can really search our heart and let's be honest with ourselves. Um, we are in a section of Matthew that Clint kind of introduced last week. This is the last week of Jesus's life. And he is presenting himself daily in the temple as the Passover lamb saying, examine me, come on, bring it. And before where we know there'd be conflict and so he would go over here just to kind of avoid the Pharisees. Now he's like, bring it on boys, let's go, toe to toe. And so we're gonna see conflict, 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 conflict up into the point where they murder him. And we're gonna see why they murder him because of what he's saying today. He's saying, you done out. Putting in Stetson, right? So that's what we're gonna see. So let me uh, read the first part of our text. This kind of sets up the parables and then we'll jump in and kind of unpack them and see what, uh, how they speak to our hearts. Verse 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, but what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? And Jesus answered them and said, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered and said, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither then will I tell you what authority I do these things. All right, and so here's, here's the setting. Jesus is in the temple. Uh, the chief priests, the, the Sanhedrin is, is, a, is a kind of formal word. All the muckety-mucks, there's 71 Sanhedrin. These are the top dogs, the religious leaders of the day, 70 elders and the high priest. And they are kind of the, they are like the Congress, the Senate of the nation, right? Of the religious group. And they approach Jesus. Jesus over in the corner. Remember, he's in the tabernacle, all right? Or the temple, excuse me. This is a model Clint showed you last week of the temple. It's a huge structure, y'all. It's, it's about 33 acres or something like that. It's ginormous, right? And you see all those little columns. Jesus sets up shop in one of those columns where he just a day earlier kicked everyone out for selling stuff, right? And so he sets up class. And he's over there teaching. And you can imagine hundreds of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem. And so if, if he's in there teaching, you can imagine the class is full. I mean, it's, there's a huge group. And all the Pharisees are over like, no one's at our class. And so here these Sanhedrin kind of slide over. And right in the middle, it, it says that Jesus was teaching. And in the middle of his lesson, they come up and they ask a question. Who gives you the authority to do these things? Who, who are you, in essence? Like, we know you're not a Levite, all right? We know you're not a Pharisee. You didn't train under Gamaliel. You, didn't, you haven't gone to class with us. Who, who gives you the right to set up, during Passover week, highest feast week of the year, who gives you the right to set up class in our place, teach all these people? Who gives you the right to throw out all our salesmen? Who gives you the right to heal? Verse 14 says he healed blind, he healed lame. Who, where do you get this authority, What's, who are you? And the answer, let's be honest. I mean, every third grader knows. Where do you get this authority? What's the answer? God. I'm God. 
I am the Messiah. I am the second person of the Trinity. I am the one who you've been waiting for. I am Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's me. That's the simple answer. But you think if Jesus says, oh, I'm God, they're going to be like, oh, good job. Keep going, right? Is they're going to be their response? No, because they don't want to know who he is. They're asking the question because they don't care. They don't want to know, which is why he responds in typical Jesus fashion with a question. They ask a question, he asks a question. Okay, I'll answer your question. First answer of mine. John, John the Baptist, remember him? Was his authority from heaven or from man? Where did, where did the message of John come from? The baptism of John. Remember, the baptism of John was very simple. He said, repent and believe in the one who would come. Be baptized for the forgiveness. Wash away. Now, it's not washing away your sin, but in, in a, a symbolism of repentance and believing in the one who would come after, get baptized. That was his simple message, right? That I am the forerunner to who? The Messiah. One who will come after me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. That was John's simple message. So did that message come from God or was that from man? And they realized they're stuck. They're stuck. Because they said, if we say from heaven, then what? Then they'll say, why didn't you believe him? If his message is from God, he is truly the one that Malachi promised that he is the forerunner of the Messiah, that you were to repent and believe the one who would come after, then, then people are gonna say, well, why don't you believe him then? Here he is. Why don't you repent and believe in him? But if we say from man, we're afraid. And Luke's gospel says they're afraid that they would be stoned for blasphemy because everyone agreed John was a prophet. So they're stuck. They're stuck. And so they do what religious people always do. They plead the fifth. Well, we don't know. We don't know where the authority was. We don't know where this message was. And so Jesus says, okay, if you don't know, then I'm not telling you either. And it's not that Jesus is refusing to ask their question. He's already answered their question. If they, with, if they with, uh, just truly were seeking to know, they would say, oh, wait, John's from God. John said the guy coming after him is God. He's God. If you're really seeking, you would know the answer, but they're not because they don't care. That's not why they're asking the question. They want to destroy him. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm not gonna answer you. And he turns back to his people and he starts teaching. Now he's gonna teach them a message about them, which is what I love. Jesus is kind of like, okay, thank you. And he goes back to teaching, but he's gonna talk about these guys and why they are done. So he tells parable number one. What do you think? Man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And his son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, yes, sir. Good Southern boy. But he did not go. And then he asked the question, which of these two did the will of the father? And they said the first. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. Believe him. So he says, all right, we got two sons. And dad, you know, as a dad of three sons, I, you know, I have to do this all the time. I'm like, boys, because I got only two at home now. Like, boys, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to go in the yard, I want you to edge the yard, I want you to blow the yard, I want you to get the leaves up, I want you to blow the, you know, I give them all these instructions. He said, I, this is what a dad does. And one son says, I ain't doing that. No, I got stuff to do. We're going to the mall. We're going to Chick-fil-A. We're going to wherever. I'm not, I'm not doing it. But that son realizes, you know what? 
Dad wants me to cut the yard. I need to cut the yard. He goes back and cuts the yard. The second son is that compliant second child. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you want, whatever you want. But in the end, doesn't do it. Does nothing. Right? And so he asked the question, which one did the will of the father? Which kid do you like and which kid do you like? I'm going to beat that child. The first. And they're like, Jesus, they answered the first. And Jesus says, you are right. And then he applies it. He says this, truly I say to you. This is what he's, he's saying, listen to me here. This is the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to be in the kingdom before those buys. They're done. They're done. And you got to grasp the shock value for these Pharisees. And even for the normal people who are just like, who think that those guys are great. They think those guys are where it's at. That's, that's what I'm striving to be, just like them. When they hear prostitute, tax collector, I mean, again, we, we can think of, you know, maybe not, nothing much worse than the IRS, yes. But there's, there, we can think of greater sinners, right? Murderers, uh, you know, uh, people who steal children. I, we, we can think of the worst of the worst. Think of the worst of the worst. And Jesus is saying, that person gets in before Mr. Religious Guy. I read an article this week about the son of Sam. For those of you who are old enough, remember, he was a, uh, a mur- serial killer in the 70s. They, they caught him. He killed several people, burned down a bunch of things. And, uh, and he's in jail and he came to faith in Christ, like legitimately, like not like jailhouse confession. Yeah, I just want to get out. Like legitimately came to faith in Christ and has ministry in, in jail now and ministers to, to other people. And actually in his parole hearing in like the late 2000s, they're like, do you, do you know, what are you going to do when you get out? He's like, I shouldn't get out. Don't let me out. It's like, what? No, I don't deserve to get out. I'm, I'm guilty. I did all these things. And I got great ministry here. He actually doesn't want to get out of jail because he wants to continue ministry. See, there's a change of life. And if you think, Son of Sam killed several people, eight, nine, ten people, however many people, and he, he will be in the kingdom before a religious guy wearing a collar who has not repented of sin and believed in Christ. That's the shock value. Like, he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, that's the beauty of this passage. How many of us are the first kid? I'm the first kid. Dad, I don't want nothing to do with you. I'm going to go drink myself to death. I'm going to go party myself to death. I'm going to do what I want. That's my life until I came to faith in Christ, right? And the beauty of this passage is, yeah, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. That's the beauty of this passage, right? And that's the shock value of this passage. And then Jesus explains it, verse 32, four, key word, four. Here's why. John came to y'all, Pharisees, in the way of righteousness. He showed you how to be righteous. Repent and believe in me. He showed it to you, and you didn't believe him. But on top of that, the tax collectors, they heard his message, these dirty, rotten scoundrels, and they did believe. And then their lives changed. And you saw the prostitute go from not prostitute. You saw the tax collector go to next not tax collector. You saw him be honest. You saw life change, legitimate life change, People's moving towards God and you still didn't change your mind and belief. So you are done and we're putting in Stetson. You're out. You're done. And here's, here's the, the part for us. What is it that causes them to reject and what, why God says you're done? Here's what, all right? Here's what we wanna be. We don't wanna just be people who talk the talk. We wanna be people who walk the walk because God is not impressed with your I believe in Jesus, 
Oh, you go to church with your singing, with your whatever. There's nothing wrong with going to church, obviously. There's nothing wrong with singing. There's nothing wrong with saying, I am a Christian. That is fine. But if your talk doesn't match your walk, we gotta ask some questions, don't we? Right? Because these guys are gonna be as spiritual on the outside and in their language. They know all the verses. They know all the songs. They know all the right words. And it never moves the needle for them. It doesn't move the needle. But you know what does move the needle in the eyes of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, that see their brokenness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And because they're poor in spirit, what do they do? What does Jesus say next? Blessed are those who mourn, mourn over their sin. There's the ones gonna be comforted. And then what's next? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they don't have it on their own. See, that's the heart of the prostitute and the tax collector. They realize they're broken. They realize they're needy. They realize they have sin. And that's it. God says, that's, you're in the game. You're in the game, right? And so, and so what we have to ask ourselves is this. And this is, this is the challenging thing for me this week as I'm studying, and I think for us. When Jesus speaks through his word, through men and women of God, through someone in your community group, through your spouse, through your parents, when God speaks through his people or his word, how do you respond? How do you respond? Because that's the telling thing. Look, we're not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But the faith that is legit will never be alone. Because the half-brother of Jesus says, you, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So when God speaks, when his word is open, it says, thus says the Lord, how do you respond? Because Jesus doesn't care about those who say, Lord, Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord and what? You don't do what I say. These people, the Pharisees, they acknowledge me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so as we sit uncomfortably in our chairs this morning, I think it's important for us to ask, when Jesus speaks, how do we respond? And I'm not talking about like, yeah, I know. My wife really needs to hear this sermon. She's at home today. Yeah, I'm gonna send it to her. My kids need to listen. Did you hear Pastor Bill this morning? That's right. My boss, I'm gonna send this sermon. I wrote my boss. I'm gonna invite my neighbor. They really need to hear this. They may, and so so do I. And if I do, so do you. See, when, when God's word is open and it says, do not get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Some of you ought to say, you know what? I drink too much. I drink to a point where I have to call an Uber. That means you drink too much. And you need to repent and you need to believe the forgiveness of God and you need to stop. Some of you, when you read, flee immorality. You're like, yeah, well, I mean, we're fine. We're gonna get married, so it doesn't really matter. So we're just gonna live together. We're just gonna sleep together. It doesn't really matter. Who says it doesn't matter? You say it doesn't matter? God says it matters. And you you need to flee immorality. And if that means you go live on your uncle's couch for three months and get married, that means what you do. That means if you're watching garbage TV and it's full of immorality and you think you can escape that and putting that in your heart, no, you flee that, right? When when God says, I want you to serve one another, that's not for this person over here. They don't do nothing. They never serve anybody. He's not talking to them. He's talking to you. He says, put away gossip, slander, envy, all these things. That He's talking to you. When he says to forgive one another, 
and pray for one another. He's talking to you. And so the, the idea is, and again, no one does this perfectly. That's not what I'm saying. But the idea is if God speaks, how do you respond? Yes, dad, and you actually do it? Or maybe it's no at first, but like, yeah, that's, that's what I need to hear. And then you go about, that's the heart. The people who are in are not necessarily the ones who are like, and some of you are mad at me right now because I call out your sin and you're like, oh, I ain't ever coming back to this. That's fine. But what my goal is in maybe two weeks, three weeks, you're like, yeah, God's right. I'm not. And you come around and that's the one he says is in because they have a heart to listen to my voice, right? We want to not just talk the talk, y'all. We want to walk the walk. So I think a great thing for maybe some of us to do this week is, where am I not walking the walk? And ask God the Holy Spirit and then your spouse, because they'll tell you too. Where am I not walking the walk? And that's, that's the area God may be moving in, all right? That's the first parable. Let's look at the second one. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. In this parable, each, each person represents someone. So the master of the house is clearly a representative of God, God the Father, right? There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. The vineyard is a reference to the nation Israel, Isaiah chapter five. They would have gotten this. They're like, here, they hear vineyard, they, they're familiar with Isaiah. They know that they're the vineyard. And look how God the Father cares about the vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it. He builds a tower. He leases it out to tenants. The tenants represent the leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, the chief priests, even some of the Old Testament kings, that God entrusted his precious, precious vineyard, Israel, to these leaders. And all he wants is what? Some fruit. Because it's his vineyard, right? And so the tenants, and then he sends servants to the tenants to get the fruit. The servants represent the prophets, the people God sends, the Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, or Zechariah, Malachi, all these folks that God constantly is sending and say, bring fruit, give me the fruit. Where's your fruit? Bring some fruit. And what does the nation and the leaders do? They take the servants when God the Father sends them and they beat one and they kill another and they stone another. Now, after that first round, if I'm God, I'm like, okay, they're done. I mean, if I'm God, the Old Testament is a very short book. It's not 39 books, it's like seven. But God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding, abounding in loving kindness. So he sends Elijah and Elisha and all these, Nathan and all these prophets over hundreds of years bring forth fruit, bring forth fruit, bring forth fruit, bring forth fruit. They kill them, they stone them, they don't listen to them, they kick them out. And so at that point, I'm done there. But even God goes beyond that. He says, I will send my son. They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, what do they do? They say to themselves, here's the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And what's the irony, y'all? You know how the story ends at the end of the week. This is the very thing they do, right? There's the heir. Let's kill him. And they killed him and they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard, which is exactly what they do to Jesus. They kill him outside of the city on a hill called Golgotha. He's, he's just, he's prophesying exactly what is gonna happen. And he asked the question, so what's God gonna do? What's the master of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard gonna do? And they answer, well, he's gonna put those wretches to a miserable death. And it's probably not the Pharisees saying this. It's probably the crowd, right? They're like, he's gonna smoke them. And, and the Pharisees respond in Luke's gospel, say, surely not. 
Because he says they're going to take the vineyard and he's going to give it to someone else. He's taking out JT and he's putting in Stetson. And they're like, no, we're varsity. We're, we're the best. We're the number one. That could never happen. Make it no time. May it never be. Surely not, is what they say. And then Jesus looks at him and says, have you never read your Bibles? You experts in the law, you experts in the Bible. And this is a little Hebrew humor that you don't get because you're not a, a first century Jew. He's going to quote Psalm 118, which is a song that they've been singing all week because the Hillel songs were sung during Passover. So he says, really? So what's that song y'all been singing all week? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's that even mean? Because this is a psalm that in its initial uh, in interpretation was about Israel, which is rejected by the nations and their king rejected by the nations, but yet they're chosen by God. He says, what's this mean? That the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the most important stone in, in the building. It was the first one laid. It was the one all the angles of the building were built on. The two walls, the, the, the first two walls, they rest all the weight. So everything rests on this one stone. He says, the one that the, the builder said, yeah, we don't like that one. That's garbage. Get it out of here. He, that's, that's, that's in, it became the cornerstone, right? It became the one that was the most important. And this is marvelous in God's eyes. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another, to a people who produce fruits. Who's it given to? It's given ultimately to the ethne, to the Gentiles, to the church. Look around. It's given to us. You're the replacement. You're the bench warmer. You were the reject. Sorry. You're in good company because they rejected Christ. So it's okay to be a reject. But that's his point, right? And then he gives a warning. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it's crushed. The point is this. If you reject the stone, it doesn't go well for you. Either way, it doesn't go well for you, right? And they understand he's talking about them. And here's why. This is an allusion, this little, this idea, and this is a quoted verse throughout the New Testament, but this is an allusion to something they're very familiar with. Daniel chapter two. Right? We know a lot of Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel in the, you know, those guys in the fiery furnace and Daniel eating only salad. We're familiar with that. Daniel chapter two is a story where Daniel and his buddies have become part of the Chaldeans, part of the, the wise men, so to speak, of Babylon. And the king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And it freaks him out. So he wakes up and he goes to his Chaldeans and says, I want you to tell me what the dream was and I want you to tell me its interpretation. They're like, just tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. He's like, now y'all have lied too many times. So here's how I know you're telling the truth. You're gonna tell me the dream and its interpretation. They're like, no one can do that. He's like, you're dead then. And so they come to kill everybody and Daniel's one of these guys and he doesn't even know what's going on and they come to get Daniel and kill him and his buddies. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Give us a couple days. And they get on their knees and they pray and they ask God to reveal and then he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, Daniel, can you tell me the dream? He's like, I can't do nothing. But there's a God in heaven, and he knows everything. And so here's your dream. So he tells him the dream. He says, there's, you saw a statue. The statue had a head of gold, chest of silver, bronze thighs, iron legs, and ten toes mixed of iron and clay. And this king is, is basically the future kingdoms of the world. You're the head of gold, bronze, big, powerful, rich kingdom. There's going to be one after you. 
Medo-Persia Empire, there are the silver. Then there's going to be one bronze after that. That's the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And then there's going to be one after that. It's kind of a divided kingdom, but it's going to be super strong, the strongest of all. That's the Roman Empire. And then there's 10 toes that are mixed with iron and clay. That's a reference to the very, 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 very end of time. You can read about it in Revelation 17, where there's going to be a united 10-king kingdom that's going to be a mixed kingdom, but it's coming. That, that's what's going to happen. But there is going to be a stone. And in your dream, you saw a stone that was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it into pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff for the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried him away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. He's saying there's a stone, it's not made, it's gonna come, it's gonna crush the kingdoms of the earth and it's gonna set up its own kingdom, it's gonna be like a mountain. That's, that's what it's an allusion to. And so what ultimately Jesus is saying is this, I'm the stone, I'm the stone. It's gonna bust it all down and I'm gonna grow my mountain and it's my kingdom, I am the stone. And they understand this and they want to destroy him. They get it. Right? They get that he is talking about them. And here's the irony of the whole passage. He's, he's, he's read their minds. They want to kill him. They want to throw him out. He, and they still, they still won't believe. He's healed people. He's, he's made blind people see. He's prophesied their own hearts. He's shown that John the Baptist is prophesying about them. They are seeing all this unfold in front of them, and they still won't believe. You often hear, I was talking to a guy this week and we were talking about, you know, people sometimes will say things like, if you could just, if God would just show me something that I would believe. You know what my response to that is? No, you won't. You won't. Because I've seen it before. The Pharisees, they saw it and they didn't believe. They saw legitimate miracles. They saw Lazarus dead four days come out of the grave and they're still like, we want to kill him. They saw blind people seeing. They saw paralyzed, lame people walking, and they still didn't believe. How come? Because they love their sin more than God. And if they have to acknowledge that he is God, then I gotta follow him, and I love my sin, so I'm not gonna believe in him. That's the heart of what's going on here, right? And ultimately, what's going on with the Pharisees is this. What, what is he calling them out for? What do they say? They, they sell themselves out. He says, they see the heir, and they say, let's kill him, and we can make it ours. That's it. They want to make it ours, right? And so the point is this, and here's what, here's what we want to talk about. Let me jump a few slides here. One more, two more. They are self-seeking. They're all about their kingdom. And God is replacing them with who? With fruitful farmers. Where does he say, I'm going to replace it with people who are going to bear fruit. And here's the choice you have to make. Are you going to be about your kingdom or are you going to be about his? Because there's only two options. I know we have this world where there's like multiple options and you can believe whatever. No, there's two options. You either build your house on the rock or you build it on the sand. You either are a child of God or you are a child of the devil. Those are the only two choices. You are either for me or you are against me. We're like, well, I'm not really against God. I'm just kind of apathetic. Apathy equals opposition, period, end of story, right? And this is the original sin, right? Self-seeking, I want to be God. What does Satan say to Adam and Eve? You can be like God. They're like, okay, I like that. I want to be like God. Can I just remind you, you are a horrible God. You're a horrible person. You're going to be even worse God. 
right? That's the point. I'm a horrible God. And, and if you go out seeking your own little kingdom and building your own little vineyard, you may actually be successful. You may get everything you want. You may, get, you may win the Powerball next time. Just tithe on it, please. <laughs> but you may get everything. You may get the career you want, the spouse you want, the dog you want, the car you want, the, the reputation. You may get it all and you may build your little kingdom. Let me tell you, you will still end up miserable and you will miss the kingdom of God because you were created not to be worshiped, but to worship. And that's the point. And these guys want to be God. We will be God. We don't want a king. We want to be the owner of the vineyard. And what we want to be is not self-seeking, but we want to be fruitful farmers. You know what fruitful farmers does? They say, man, I was on the bench, and now I'm in the game. I'm just happy to be in the game. I don't want to be the owner. <laughs> the owner's good. He loves me. He cares for me. I want to take what's his, and I want to give it back to him. I want to give him more. I want to make him, I want to know him. I want to please him. I want to make him happy because he's been so good to me. That's the heart of a fruitful farmer. And what I want us to be, CBC, because I think there's a tendency to look around and be like, man, we're in three services. We're running 14, 1,500 people. We got a this million dollar budget. We're giving a lot of money away. Savannah's pretty lucky to have us. And, and this church is pretty lucky to have me because if, they, if I wasn't here, what would they be doing? And this family's pretty happy. I, I don't want that. That's a self-seeking, my kingdom building heart. What I want us to be is a people that say, Man, I was on the bench. I was at Jayco, and I just won two national titles. Not because of me, because of God. God put me in the game. And so I just want to be faithful where I'm at. I want to be a fruitful farmer. And, and Clint hit it on it last week. There's only one way to be fruitful in the end. You know how we be fruitful? Not try real hard, do real good. Abide in Christ, and you will bear much fruit. So how's your abiding going? Right? I mean, some of us started off the year and we had all these goals and resolutions. And when I know your food resolution, your exercise resolutions, I know that's already gone. I just know that is because you're statistically speaking, you're done. You were done week two. How's your abiding? How's that time with God and his word? How's that fruit bearing? And it's not perfect. I, I can tell you it's not because none of us are. And that's not the point. But I think that it would be helpful for us as an individual. Not, don't worry about your spouse. Don't worry about your kids. Don't worry about your community group leader. Don't worry about that person. That you would check your little garden that God's given you and just look around and see, yeah, that area is dying. I got some, I got some little bit over here. And what do you do to a dying garden? You water it. You fertilize it. You give it a little sunshine. You, give the, you expose it to the sun of God's word and you fertilize it with, with prayer and water, right? Water it. I think some of us are neglecting certain areas. We're like, we don't wanna go to that side of the garden. We wanna go to the area we're already growing. And, and what, what I think would be helpful is say, hey, where do I need to bear fruit? And how do I need to just get back to abiding? What does abiding look like for you? Maybe it's just spending time quietly listening to the word of God through a sermon or reading the scripture or a, a, a book or a helpful place, getting with another person for accountability. Maybe it's repenting of sin because this sin is poisoning this area of the garden and repenting of that and then planting new gospel seeds and slowly watering it. And I'm telling you, you may not be a, a jungle in a couple of years, but you do that constantly, repent of sin, believe the gospel, repent of sin, take little steps of obedience, you're gonna look around and there's gonna be some fruit. Not because of you, because of him.
And that's what we want. We're not trying to be spectacular. I just want to be a faithful farmer, fruitful farmer, right? And I'll let God determine how much fruit, but that's what we want to be. So we got to ask, are you spending more time thinking about how many likes you get on Facebook or how the referee blew that call last week or, you know, whatever, you're still talking about that? Getting more stuff that you're just going to have in bulk trash in a few years or abiding? These people are out. Why? They don't walk the walk and they're self-seeking. We want to walk the walk and be fruitful farmers. And then there's one more parable real quick. Verse 22, I mean, chapter 22, verse one. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven, the, the rule and reign of God may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. I mean, for those of you who like follow the BBC and the monarchy and all that stuff and the two kids, one's bad, one's good, you know, you know all that stuff, right? You're William, I think I, the first service, William's the good one. The other one, I don't know, Harry, he's the bad one, right? Harry's the bad one, right? Whatever, I don't care, right? I don't, I don't want a King of England. I'm happy with the Congress. But, but the idea is, can you imagine if, if the, the wedding invitation goes out to Prince whoever's celebration? I remember 1981 or whatever, Princess Di, and every channel had it. It was like, oh, this, this huge celebration. And that's the idea. The king is having a feast for his son, for the future king. And he sends out invites and say, come on, we're going to celebrate. It's going to be the party of parties and people won't come. Like, man, I ain't going. And in his grace, he sends more servants. No, 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 tell them. I prepared my dinner. Oxen, fattened calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. There's no vegan option for y'all. You want a vegan option? Go somewhere else. We've killed the, the calf. We're going to have, we're going to feast. It's going to be the party of parties. Everything is ready. Come on. But they paid no attention. One says, I got to go to my farm. Because, you know, your farm's better than the king's farm, right? And this guy, I got to go to my business. I got to go to work. And others grab the servants and say, we don't want to go. And they kill them and treat them shamefully. And so the king, just like in the, in the earlier parable, he's angry and he sent his troops to destroy them. He says, okay, you're out. You're done. You're like, that's kind of harsh. It's not harsh. This is an act of treason and war against the king. You're saying, I don't want you as my king. I don't care what you say as my king. And in an honor culture, you would never do that. But don't, don't miss the, the, the point of the parable. God, the, the king was gracious and kept inviting and kept inviting and saying, come, I just want you to celebrate with my son. Come, come, come. And so they don't come. So he says, okay, you're done. And this is clearly a reference to the Pharisees. They don't even want to come. So he says, you're done. And so he says, go into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they smell like. I don't care where they've been. Just anybody who wants to come and celebrate with my son, bring them. Bring them. And so the place is full. The place is full, right? With all these rejects and all these people who, who have, weren't invited originally, but they're coming, right? Verse 10 says they were, the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so the king comes and looks at all the guests, verse 11, and he sees a man there who had no wedding garment. And that day for a feast like this, the king would actually provide you your outfit. So like imagine you're invited to the black tie affair at the White House. And not only that, the, the, we're going to give you your tuxedo. You don't have to rent one. We're going to give you a tuxedo. We're going to give you a dress, a glamorous dress and a, and a nice tuxedo. We're going to provide it. So you show up and they hand you, here's your wedding gift. Here's your wedding clothes. Here's your wedding clothes. And so everyone puts them on and looking sharp. And the, the king looks out and he sees a dude in cutoffs and a tank top who just doesn't fit. And he says, friend. And friend is not actually in the gospel is usually a good thing. 
It's not like, hey, buddy. It's, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And notice his response. He is speechless. He has nothing to say. He's like standing before the king in cutoffs and a tank top with his big old gut hanging out. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. For those who think Jesus never talks about judgment, he speaks of judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Many are called, but few are chosen. Don't get all hung up on, oh, what does it mean to be chosen? Here's the point of the parable. Who's invited to the feast? Everybody. Who was invited? Were the Pharisees invited? They were invited. Were the priests invited? They were invited. Were the rejects invited? They were invited. Everybody is invited. Now, this group over here, they won't even show up. They don't even respond to the invitation. He says, so you're done. You're out. But there's also another guy who's out. Why? Because he doesn't come dressed for the occasion. And so this is the last thing. And this is the point of this parable. Everybody is welcome and everybody can come. But if you're going to come, you got to come dressed in the occasion. And the only way to be dressed is in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. You have to say, I got nothing to wear. I mean, I got my tuxedo from the 70s, but it doesn't look so good. And he said, I will clothe you in my righteousness. Right? That, that, is, that is the point of the parable. That's the point of the New Testament that Jesus says, I don't need you to, to dress yourself. In fact, I want you to come and say, I got nothing to wear and I will give you my own clothes. You're wearing the clothes of the king. That is what it means to be in Christ, that you are dressed in his righteousness alone. And, and this, is, this is the call of the New Testament. If you think that you can just pull out your tux from the 70s, and I think it looks real good on me, you will be standing there before the king one day and you will be speechless because he's gonna be like, what are you doing? And it doesn't matter how close you've been to Jesus. You could be at the party, doing the Macarena, eating the food, and one day when everything is done, he is going to stand before you and you're going to have to say something. And if you think, can you really get into the party and be close to Jesus and not be part of it? Ask Judas. Because he, he was close to Jesus. He was around Jesus. He did the same thing Peter did. The difference is Peter repented and he did not. Peter came to a place where I sinned. I need you to forgive me, Lord Jesus. Judas did not. And, and so the challenge that you need to ask yourself this morning is, I know you're in church and it's a Sunday and you've given this and you grew up in church and you went to camp and you read your Bible. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Yes or no? Because everybody can come, but you gotta come through him and him alone. Period, end of story, have a nice day. All are welcome, but only those who come and say, I've got nothing to wear. And he says, I know, and I got a suit for you. It's my own suit. I mean, I was talking to a guy this week and I, and I said, I told him, I said, you know, salvation, it really is, it really is the simplest thing. But yet so many people stumble over it because it's not about what you do. The whole point is you can't do anything. And that's where people stumble and fall because like, wait, I got to put on my tux, don't I? I got to come, I got to do this. Every other religion of the world is do this to get to God, be faithful here, do this. And Christianity is you got to come naked so that Jesus clothes you in his righteousness. you got to say, i got nothing to wear. Jesus, I am broken. I am empty. I am sinful. He says, yes, that is the point. That's the point. And so many people stumble over that because it's too easy. It's so easy they find themselves, you're done to out. 
because they feel like they need to add something to the finished work of Christ. If you had to add something to the cross, then why does Jesus die in the first place? If it's not enough, then it's not enough. But what does he say? It is finished. It is finished, right? That's what he says on the cross. And, and so my encouragement to you here and in early two services, are you just mingling around at the party or are you dressed right? You gotta ask yourself that because the last thing I want for anyone who comes through our doors today or ever is to think, I'm good, I do X, I do Y, and then one day when you stand before Christ, you realize you weren't and you will be speechless. You have nothing to say. And you will remember sermons like this where I called you and I pleaded with you, I beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Own your sin, trust in Christ, and follow him. Don't trust in your own righteousness because your tux is filthy rags. It's filthy rags. We are the replacements, the Stetson Bennett's. We just are. And what we wanna be is walk in the walk. We wanna be fruitful farmers. And we certainly wanna make sure that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. It comes through faith and faith alone. Let me pray and we'll respond through singing. Father God, I thank you for some, some stark but uh, helpful truths to just remind us uh, of what you're calling us to, the blessing of being part of your kingdom, how to even to get in just through simple faith. And I pray for every one of us that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would uh, not just talk the talk, but we'd walk the walk, that we would see where there's lack of fruit and that we would bear fruit by abiding and that we would evaluate, are we really in Christ? And if not, to, to embrace the simplicity of the gospel, that you live the life we couldn't live, that you died for us in our place and rose again, and that by faith in you, we can be clothed in your righteousness. I pray you do that uh, wherever it's appropriate, Lord.